with Chris Churchman, Director of Churchman Landscape Architects, who are celebrating their 25-year anniversary this year. And Chris has been doing a lot of work around landscaping to increase air quality benefits on a number of schemes, notably the Green Heart Project at Birmingham University. And he did an amazing talk at TDAD Midlands, and that's how we've come to have this interview with Chris today to give us some insight into his thinking around the issues of air quality. And I will hand it over to Chris to explain a little bit more. Okay, um, thanks very much. I, I think those of you who know uh, Church Landscape Architects will know that down the years um, we've always had an interest in sustainability and all this. Um, dimensions uh, and manifestations. Um, so in the 90s, we were really interested in living walls to the point that we put one up in our uh, office as a sort of uh, uh, test bed, as a sort of trial, just to see how they worked. Um, we've won awards for sustainable urban drainage. Um, and so when, when pollution and the possibility that trees and green infrastructure could um, have some impact on pollution um, started coming along as a subject, um, then it was something that we sort of picked upon fairly early on, I suppose. Um, so over the last two years, it's been on our radar, um, but over the last year in particular, we've moved into it as a sort of fairly major area of research. Um, and to some extent, uh, that sort of process of um, research and um, analysis, I suppose, has been facilitated through our work with universities. So one of our biggest client bases is, has been in the higher education sector over the years. So for the last uh, 18 years or so, we've been working with the University of Warwick. And then more recently, we've been working with the University of Birmingham, but we've also worked with Caledonian University, uh, UEA, the Bartlett, etc. So edu the ed education sector has always been one that um, has interested us. And whenever we go for interviews for education projects, we always um, say, wouldn't it be fantastic if the students and the academics were involved in this project? And at interviews, that always goes down really well, and then you get the job, and um, then you sort of mention that at the first design team meeting you go to, and that's that's met with a fairly sort of blank stare normally, and so it never really gets any further than that. Um, and so when we secured the project with the University of Birmingham again, we sort of tried this tactic and they sort of engaged with it and then dropped it. And for about 18 months while the project was being developed, there was no feedback. And then um, things changed when they took uh, our main uh, graphic, our main CGI from the project, and they printed it on a huge awning, which was about 20 metres by 60 metres. And they hung it um, within the space where the Green Heart project, which we're delivering, was going to be built. And so everybody from every academic, every student suddenly saw what was coming. And so the academics suddenly, it was on, definitely on their radar that this scheme was uh, coming up. And um, there was a particular group within the university um, called BIFOR, which is Birmingham Institute of Forestry uh, and Research. And... Um, I mean, they have a particular focus within um, the environment and its impact on trees. They have a woodland down in Gloucestershire somewhere where they've erected these uh, huge um, enclosures and they pump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and then they see what impact that has on the woodland uh, within those enclosures. 
and you can go on the website and see this stuff. I mean, it's um, it's all there. Uh, but in, in addition to this work, that, that particular area of work, they also started to look at um, the research work related to pollution control through trees. Um, so there are other universities who are sort of actively engaged in this. Uh, Lancaster University had done quite a bit of work. Um, and there were one or two others, but it was mainly Birmingham, University of Birmingham um, and a guy called Rob McKenzie, who were the sort of guys who were sort of pushing this particular area of research. So um, through Birmingham, through the, our work at Birmingham and through Rob, we engaged with them and then started to investigate pollution um, in quite a lot more detail to see what the possibilities were. Um, I mean, from a landscape designer's perspective, and that's what I am, I'm a landscape designer, not a scientist, um, you know, you always want something where there's a sort of tangible evidence that what you're doing has a real benefit, a real return. Um, so ideally, you know, you want to, you want to find a paper that says plant 10, or plant 100 trees and it'll re achieve a 20% reduction in pollution levels within your site. But of course that doesn't exist. Uh, well, it does exist, but it's, um, you know, there's plenty of people putting claims out there and putting metrics to their claims, but it, it, the reality is those metrics don't really sort of stand up to scrutiny. Um, so I suppose the last 12 months have been a bit of a, a voyage of discovery for us. Um, and we've gone through periods when we think, yes, there's really some um, mileage in this, there's really some tangible benefits. And then other times we think, well, this is just all you know, um, smoke and mirrors. There's no real substance to this whatsoever. Um, I mean, the reality is, I'm, I, I mean, I am convinced that there is a benefit, that there is benefit from trees in terms of their ability to uh, mitigate pollution. Um, can you put a number to it? No, you can't. Uh, does that really matter? Probably not. Um, and the reason I say that is, I mean, I think if you look at other um, world issues in terms of sustainability, so plastic, for example, I don't think anyone responds to uh, or stops using plastic or becomes more aware of the fact that you know plastics are embedded within our sort of daily life because someone says you know there's x million tons of plastic in the oceans it's because david attenborough puts an image on tv that you know of a um an albatross feeding its young and the young sort of coughing up all the detritus and, and, and that is the sort of that's the, the thing that sort of the, the light bulb moment when you think this is just wrong um so you can put statistics and metrics to things, and people do, and people try to, and there are plenty of you know, sources out there which will try and convince you that a particular tree is going to achieve this much in terms of carbon reduction uh, or nitrogen dioxide reduction. I, I find all those things fairly sort of unbelievable, but am I convinced that uh, pollution is going to be diminished if we plant trees? Well, I, most definitely I am. Um, I think the other thing that I've that, that, that I, I've come become more aware of, I think, is that in a way, I think I think planting trees isn't the um, the sort of cure all. I think we've already got the solution. The solution is the trees we've already inherited. You know, I think within our cities, um, fortunately, most of the cities in the UK and I suppose throughout most of mainland Europe, they're pretty green, certainly compared to other parts of the world and so from that perspective just the sheer quantum of greenery within our cities is already you know providing the lungs that 
um, and the filters, the air filters that, that we need. Um, so planting new trees in a way, yes, it might help, but you know, it's not going to help in the short term because waiting for a new tree to grow to a reasonable size is going to take 20, 30, 50 years. And by that time, it's likely we're all going to be driving around in electric cars anyway. So the problem, the problem will have gone because obviously pollution is generated almost entirely by vehicles. It's not solely by vehicles, but the main polluter, you know, by a factor of 10 or even more is, is, is the um, internal combustion engine, um, and particularly diesel, diesel vehicles. So if they disappear and, you know, with the right government policies, they could go overnight, um, then in a way needing to start planting to deal with pollution, you know, isn't really the solution because you have to wait so long for it to have an effect. Whereas trees that you've already got are the, are, are the things that are already, you know, keeping pollution at bay, as it were. It'd be 10 times worse if we didn't have the trees that we already, we're already inheriting. So I think, I think, you know, having that sort of mindset of, you know, let's first and foremost, let's keep what we've got and then we can supplement it. But um, if we can retain all of the greenery that we currently have, then, you know, that's a big, that's a big sort of step in the right direction. I suppose there's the idea of marrying different benefits as well, isn't there? Because you've said you're interested in sustainable urban drainage, and mm. we all know that um, sort of retrofitting urban trees can have a benefit in terms of attenuating stormwater. Mm. So, do you think there's an argument that, although you've just said we need to protect what we've got, we're obviously going to need to do a lot of tree planting in the future for various other reasons? Do you have a, a, a kind of approach that you think if we're doing certain other schemes, maybe with a different goal or a different output, for example, we retrofit sold street pits at Green Blue Urban, mm-hmm. for those reasons along the highway, they could be doing more than one thing at once. Is there an argument that we need to be integrating different tree species at different um, levels of maturity and thinking about the layout when we're doing those other things so that we're actually maximising the air quality benefits? Yeah, I, I, I don't think there, there is, I don't think trees are, I don't think this is a sort of single issue um, problem. No. I, think, I think trees have multiple benefits. Um, and so certainly if you have, if you are planting trees, I'm not saying don't plant new trees because that would be ridiculous. Um, uh, if you are planting new trees, then certainly there is a pollution reduction benefit. It's just, I'm just saying you are going to have to, there is going to be a time lag between you introducing that tree and it then becoming more efficient or if, or as efficient as it possibly can be in terms of reducing pollution. But, you know, trees have so many benefits, you know, biodiversity, sustainable urban drainage, and at the end of the day, they're just beautiful to look at. I mean, I um, when I give talks on this subject, I always end, my, my talks always end with a, an image of an oak tree. And the reason I use that is that an oak tree is not a great reducer of pollution. It's actually quite a poor reducer of pollution. But there are so many other benefits that come out of an oak tree that, you know, a hundred year old oak tree is just a beautiful thing in its own right. Um, And of course, it's got all the biodiversity benefits. The the reason, so I should explain why I say um, oak trees are not great in terms of reducing pollution. Trees are actually polluters uh, themselves. They all trees put out um, what's called volatile organic compounds, and a particular volatile 
um, organic compound or VOC is isoprene. Um, and the problem with isoprene is that it um, enters a chemical reaction with nitrogen dioxide, which is what cars emit from their, um, from, that's the major pollutant, basically NOx or particulate matter. And the NOx, um, which is nitrogen dioxide and nitric oxide, um, that combines under sunlight with um, isoprene and it produces ozone. Um, now ozone, uh, very high levels in the, in the stratosphere is fine because it stops the sunlight uh, getting down to um, the Earth's surface, but at street level it's very bad because it, um, it really exacerbates problems for anyone who has sort of breathing problems. Um, so from that perspective, you know, an oak tree, if you're going to plant for as a pollution reducer, then an oak tree is not the best tree to use. So I suppose as landscape architects, it's incumbent on us to know which are the good trees, uh, which are the best trees, which are the most optimum. Um, and so the best are those those that have hairy leaves. Um, so it's uh, birch in particular, pubescent birches, is the, probably the best. Um, but also alders are particularly good, sycamore are particularly good. And quite a few pines are, are very good. And the reason, the reason, the reason is that you need a leaf surface area which is uh, heavily articulated, um, because the way that particulate matter um, is absorbed by the tree, it's just basically like um, a sponge, basically, or a tissue. I suppose if you, you hang it out there in the atmosphere, it just gathers dust. Uh, particulate matter, very fine, fine particulate matter, just gathers on the surface. So if you've got something which has got lots of veins and ridges and lots of um, hairs, uh, then the particulate matter will cling to it or a waxy surface or is another um, type of surface which is very efficient at mopping up particulates. Um, and so they are, are absorbed on the surface of the leaf. Uh, when it rains, they get washed off um, and then the next layer builds up, etc. Or at the end of the year, when the leaves fall off the trees, then that particulate matter goes to ground. So there are ways of us as designers um, certainly improving uh, the way that um, a body of planting will work in terms of reducing pollution. Um, um, one is, as I say, by um, choosing the right species. And the other uh, is by making sure that once you planted a tree, then um, it grows at the optimum rate. Um, we always we, we always, on a lot of our projects, we look at the idea of compound growth within trees, which is normally a philosophy which is applied to pensions that, you know, I think everyone knows with a pension that um, they increase by sort of small percentages each mm -hmm. year. But because it's compounded growth, then, you know, if you keep a pension for 20 years, then um, the actual growth per year by the time of the year 20 is significant. I mean, even if you're only putting in a small amount in those initial years, you know, it's, it is a, a sort of exponential growth curve. And trees are the same. I mean, if you, if you had a tree which was putting on 5% of growth and then the, the same species tree next to it, and that was achieving 7% of growth, after 10 years, you've got something which has got a crown, which is, you know, 60, 70, 80% the, the um, more in size terms than the tree which has been growing at five percent so the more that we put into ensuring that uh, the trees that we are investing in 
are growing at the fastest possible rate that they can, so they're as happy as they can be, uh, then the more they're likely, A, to produce a big tree, B, to look good, and C, to be mopping up more and more pollution. So you, you can certainly accelerate things, and you can certainly um, achieve better outcomes in pollution terms if you do the right, if you do um, follow the right, right sort of methodology. Mm. And I suppose that's what we've been experimenting with at Greenbrook Urban, the difference between using, you know, how do you put a tree in the ground? I mean, mm. it's not just a one-size-fits-all kind no. of approach. And we've been trying to work out why, you know, trees weren't doing well and we were losing nearly 30% of them back in the 70s mm. when we were putting them in the hard landscape. And there's loads of trials now to suggest that actually, you know, just putting them in a basic structural soil system doesn't always give you the best growth. Mm. But there'll be other systems and things will come online, you know, as mm. time elapses. And as you, as you say, canopy cover is really important. Yeah. And do you find um, in your line of work that you have a, a real difficulty making that argument for investment in the actual tree pit system itself at the early stages? Because that's quite, it's, a, <laughs> it's something that often comes as an afterthought in a lot of larger development schemes. Yeah, so I think um, the market has certainly changed over the last 10 years. I mean, I think. Ten years ago, if you mentioned to somebody you were going to put in, going to put in twenty cubic meters of plastic crates under a tree, you know they think you were mad. Um, particularly if it's going to cost them five grand to do so. Whereas now, you know, there's enough of the market um, who, who who get it. Basically, there's lots of QSs out there who've been through the projects where they've seen it done. I mean, it is accepted norm that that's what happens now. But of course, I mean, value engineering, you know, you still get people coming back saying, why do we need 20 cubic metres? Can't we have five cubic metres? Or can't we just have a pit? Because the reality is, I mean, until you know, this this century, till 2000, before these systems came on the market, what did, how did people plant trees? Well, they dug a hole, which was a cubic metre, um, in a fairly sort of, into subsoil quite often, but they just dig a sort of cubic metre of earth and chuck the tree in. Um, and expected to survive. So, uh, you know, I, I, we've moved a long way from um, from that mm. sort of common practice, which you know, that's what it, that's what it was. So we've moved a, a long way away from that. But um, and I think we are getting to a point now where the acceptance that the sort of underground infrastructure is totally important to getting a successful tree. But at the end of the day, you know, that's, that is one factor. Um, the bigger factor I feel is that the sort of landscape industry accepts, I mean, it must be one of the most unsustainable industries there is, because I mean, to have um, almost a sort of acceptance that plants are gonna die, when the nursery industry produces these things, and they produce healthy plants, and they go to site, and it's you know the practice then, the sort of common practices on site are so woefully ina- in- in- inadequate um, that you know you, people accept large losses. I mean, I've, I have I have had in the last couple of years schemes where fifty percent of the plant material has died because. The plants which have been grown in nurseries, you know, specified correctly, everything has been put in place. They turn up on site. The main contractor isn't ready for the landscape contractor. They're then sitting crates for six weeks during the heart of the summer and things just are, are literally left to die. Um, and so 
there is an acceptance. I think there is a, there, there is an acceptance of a certain percentage of losses uh, across all schemes. Uh, now, fifty percent is obviously exceptional, but I, I think it's unusual. It's not totally unique, but it is unusual to have schemes where a hundred percent of the plant material survives, and that should that should be an achievable objective. You know, as an industry, mm. from landscape architects, landscape contractors. We should be able to ensure that 100% of the material that comes to site and has been invested in and grown on at the nursery comes to site and then has a good chance of survival. Um, and that's not where we're at at the moment. So there's a number of things that have to be, that could easily be put right to ensure, if we were to, if we were to ensure that our landscapes were enabling or were, were growing at their and establishing at their at their optimum rate well thank you very much for your contribution and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be building on this research <laughs>